the terminology that Barry is using is different than the terminology that Hamilton is using, but just for the sake of our, you know, kind of communication and, and conversation, secondary units. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Hey everybody, Sarah Larby here. Do you know what I think the future of the Burr strategy will be? Listen to this podcast, we actually get into it. But the Burr strategy has definitely changed a lot since I started investing and doing the Burrs. And it's going to keep evolving. What makes sense today might have not made sense before. And it's not going to make sense in five years or 10 years from now necessarily, but it's important to evolve. And so I hope you guys enjoy this podcast today. We talk about what I think is going to be the future of doing the Burr strategy. I think probably, you know, it's going to ramp up if I had to take a guess in the next, you know, 12 to 24 months. This is going to be a strategy that a lot of us are going to be employing and, you know, it likely will work for a while. And then at some point we're going to have to pivot again, but it's uh, it's a really great podcast. Today's guest is Chris Shabib, who is a real estate investor, a realtor, a speaker, a coach, and he has a wealth of knowledge in uh, the future of the Burr options, projects, whatever you call them. So I hope you guys enjoy today's podcast and uh, don't forget to leave a rating and review if you enjoy these podcasts. The best is on Apple Podcasts. I think that's where it counts the most. So if you guys could take a moment and do that, that would be awesome. I really appreciate it. Have a great week and see you guys soon. Chris, welcome to the show. How are you? Good, Sarah. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm excited to have you on. I was, uh, I'm not on Facebook a ton, but really impressed with the conversation that you were having about additional dwelling units. So we will get into some of that good stuff. But before we do, Chris, can you give us a little bit of background on, uh, on who you are, what you do, and, and also how you got started in investing in real estate? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I um, have had three careers so far, actually. Um, I was a contractor for a number of years, um, ran my own business to residential and commercial. And then I went back to school and took computer science and psychology, um, which at the time seemed like a dramatic leap from one place to another. There was more overlap though in computer science and in, in contracting than I expected. Um, but you know, that was kind of unfolding as time went on. So I, I went into contracting, moved to Silicon Valley, uh, sorry, went into computers, moved to Silicon Valley, um, building software, started running the teams, and then moved on to the business side of the equation, did financial modeling, and, and, and got some really good, what I consider to be paid education the whole time, right? Like, we work hard, but we get a ton of good experience doing it. Um, while I was doing those two things, I was doing investing. Um, so first investment, um, it's kind of, you know, everybody's got their crazy investing stories, <laughs> For me, uh, my wife and I were looking for uh, our first flip. Um, so having the contracting background, having some exposure to some people when I was young, some of my friends' parents, um, was great for me because I, I, I saw that they weren't investing. I didn't really know what it was, but I just know they owned property and they were doing well. And then I coupled that with the contracting experience. So we said, okay, let's, let's do this flip thing. Let's find the worst house we can find, which we absolutely did. Um, this place was hilarious. We, um, you know, you, you think of how we stage and show homes today. This house was dark um, to the point where we brought flashlights with us. 
Um, and there were actually people sleeping in there and it was just this insane experience. But we started gutting the first night we had it and turned out to be a great flip. So that was our very first one. Um, and then when I moved to California for tech, I flipped more there. And I was a money partner for student rentals back here and then wholesaling RTOs. Um, and today it's, it's Burr in, in multifamily and, and in residential. Awesome. So, so you've basically done a little bit of everything in, uh, in the U.S. and in Canada, it sounds like, yeah. which is really quite interesting. Now, when you were flipping and you were living in the U.S., were you flipping American, you know, on American soil or were you doing it from afar? No. So we were flipping like right in Silicon Valley. Um, biggest flip we ever did was there. Um, so, and at the time, so I started flipping by living in the property. So I think my wife likes, <laughs> what's that? House hacking. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, I think my life, my wife likes um, forced appreciation more than I do. Um, and so we did the same thing there. We were looking for a rough place. We found it um, and we gutted it. And so at the time we were living in it and I was, you know, I was doing all the drywall, the tile, the gas, electrical, plumbing. I was doing everything, which is great because it was hugely profitable, but it doesn't scale. Um, but it's so interesting, right? Like the, the investing thing for me was, was a secondary for many, many years. Um, and it wasn't until actually when we left Silicon Valley where kind of looked back on our time there and said, okay, like I made more money in real estate there than I did being paid to do tech, which is, you know, a, a good paying job. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was one of those tumblers that dropped and said, okay, I'm going to start thinking about this third move being in real estate full time. Um, for real. So that's when we came back here and started doing more flipping, but formed a corporation and started kind of running it more like a business rather than a side deal. Yeah, very cool. I mean, it is it is something to be said about the fact that in tech jobs, like you said, they don't pay just 50 grand a year. But if you were doing better in real estate than you were with your with your job, you know, I think it's uh, it, it's at that point where you decide, do I just keep doing this full time or not? And uh, I mean, was it an easy decision to decide that you're going to leave the, the job world and, and do real estate full time? No, I mean, it was a few years in the making, for sure. And the transition, no, not a, not a mild one. I remember somebody who was quite experienced said to me, you know, don't do it like I did, which is, you know, kind of live off your flips. And it's a, that source of revenue is very unpredictable and it's stressful, right? To which I did not heed that advice. And I did more flips. <laughs> and it is a, it is a, um, it's a, it's a kind of a, Uh, make or break, do or die way to go through investing. So when I consult today on that transition, it's more about kind of, kind of trade, create streams of predictable income and then investing in combination with that, Um, which I think, and whether that's through the portfolio and cash flow or, uh, you know, another, you know, source of income that's stock or it's um, related to real estate. So you're still in that business and you can invest alongside it all of those things to be determined based on what suits the person. Um, but I think, you know, that, that transition straight into uh, flipping is, um, I mean, like anything, right. It's like doing a startup. It's intense. Your learning curve is steep and it's aggressive. Um, and you cover a lot of ground quickly doing it that way, but it is stressful. So, you know, yeah. you pick your path. And, and when was this, like what year was it? Um, 2015 when I switched to full-time. So there is still, I mean, just even looking at 2015 versus 2021, and I mean, hopefully things change at some point, but it it probably, 
and correct me if I'm wrong, like it's always going to be a challenge, but it was probably a little bit easier back then to get some properties at a decent price maybe than today, or maybe I'm wrong. I mean, you know, you're, you're probably still doing a few things in the market, but somebody that's, that's thinking of doing this and going into real estate today, you know, are there additional challenges that they should be aware of versus, you know, five, six years ago? Yeah. I mean, today it's such a unique uh, point in time right now as it relates to real estate. So yeah, I would say there, there's pros and cons today. The education, the coaching um, is so much more accessible and readily available through podcasts like yours, through um, coaching programs. Just it's far more um, solidified and and um, and available to investors. That's the pro. The con is right now in this particular point in time, the buying experience is tough. It's it's super competitive. It's very, very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, it, not to say that it can't be done. There's great deals out there, but it's trickier, I think, as an entry point and where we're at with the market the way it is right now. I think when, you know, not if, but when that balances out, you know, this will become a detail rather than a, a you know, a strategic hurdle to jump. It's more of a detail point in time thing from, from my standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned, so you went from flipping to burrs and different strategies you know, what, what is a, you know, an example of the most recent transaction that you've done? Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm helping a lot of clients these days for sure. So lots of different stuff happening there. They're generally centered around multifamily. So Burr in both residential and multifamily like I do. And one of the most recent ones for me was actually just earlier in 2020 now, uh, the acquisition of a 12 unit building. And then uh, later on in 2020, another um, residential burr. And mainly right now looking at, I mean, this is be the thing for everybody, I think. If you own properties, now is the time to refinance them, leverage that capital, go do some more purchasing. So they're doing a bunch of that right now as well. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey, I just want to take a moment and interrupt the podcast to introduce you to my mortgage broker, Dahlia Barsoom, and her team at Streetwise Mortgages. Because everything around us is changing, the world as we know it is not going to be the same. COVID-19, the economic crisis is a time of uncertainty for many of us. And the lending and real estate landscape, they're changing quite rapidly day by day. Today's financing and investment decisions are going to be different than the ones that we made yesterday. Dahlia and her team are going to be able to help us maneuver through all of this. They're property investors themselves, so they've worked with thousands of real estate investors across Ontario, and they have their pulse and their finger on what's happening around us in real time from a real estate financing and investments point of view. Her team of advisors are committed to helping us keep informed and get that up-to-date information. And they're also going to be able to help us navigate through this crisis to also mitigate and minimize any financial distress during this whole transition, and also help us emerge out of this in a strong financial position so that we can leverage ourselves for some great opportunities that are going to be coming to us. They've been able to help many investors in times like this by really planning out your plan for the good, but also for the bad, because these circumstances that are happening are going to be very individual for all of us. And they're going to help navigate three key parts, financial stability, financial agility, and opportunity, and help you manage through those three things. When it comes to stability, how can you enhance your reserves and your liquidity to weather the storm? You're going to have different plans, so it's important to get that individualized plan. How can you utilize mortgage payment deferrals? Should you, should you not 
why or why not? Any debt restructuring opportunities? Those are all things that Dahlia and her team can help you work with. Now, when it comes to financial agility, there's some things that you might want to talk about are how do you make some improvements to your monthly budget so that you can increase your cash flow? Are there any financing tools that you can use to cover some short-term cash flow deficits? When it comes to opportunity, there's going to be some great opportunity that's going to come out of this. How can you set yourself up for success? So her and her team are going to be able to help you maneuver through these things and create a plan, not only for the good times, but also in times like this, so that you can handle the storm and come out ahead. Feel free to reach out to Dahlia and her team at info at streetwisemortgages.com or go to her website, streetwisemortgages.com. And now back to the show. Yeah, absolutely. The best time to pull equity and to, you know, refinance is when you don't actually have a deal on the go when you don't need it. Yeah. I kind of wish that in a way I waited because when I did my refis, I mean, it was probably back in May and June. And even since then, the, the, you know, the market's just gone insane, but I was leaving and I was planning on actually like leaving my full-time job. So I had to get it all done beforehand. Yeah. yeah. I guess you don't know what's going to happen and how the market's going to react. Right. I mean, at the start of the pandemic, we probably didn't think that it was going to be so insane in terms of like, you know, equity, equity lift, but it, uh, you know, no one's got the crystal ball. So you, you talked sure. about, you know, the 12 units, you, t- you talked about a, a few different things. You know, one of the things that, that I think that you recently uh, were talking about is additional dwelling units. And, and can you give us an idea of, you know, for anybody listening that, that may not know what that means, you know, what, what are they and why are they important uh, in, in today's world? Yeah, so additional um, secondary dwelling versus secondary suite. And I think these, these secondary dwellings, and we'll define that a little bit more, but the secondary dwellings are new enough that even the terminology isn't completely solidified. So the terminology that Barry is using is different than the terminology that Hamilton is using. But just for the sake of our, you know, kind of communication and, and conversation, secondary units um, being the the you know, the typical basement apartment, right? Um, a secondary suite, secondary unit. A secondary dwelling is a detached building on that same plot of land. Detached, again, there's some caveats to that, but if we think of garden suites, that's the case where it's, okay, it's a, it looks like, for all intents and purposes, it can look like a separate garage, but in practice, what it is, is a completely separate building with its own heat, its own hydro, its own kitchen, bathroom. It's completely self-sustained, but it looks like, you know, um, a garage, but it's, uh, there's a few different ways to construct them, but that's, that's really what that secondary dwelling is. They come in a few different flavors though, right? They come in coach houses and laneway houses and tiny homes and garden suites, and they all have a little bit different flavor to them. Um, what you saw me having a conversation around was the garden suite aspect of things though. So there, I mean, to me, the secondary dwelling is like the secondary suite six, seven years ago. In terms of the opportunity that it presents to investors, I think it's driven from the exact same you know need, right? Which is the province's mandated density first through Bill 140, now through Bill 108, and so the the density mandate is there. And so obviously the the provincial planners want density, not sprawl. Um, it's better for profits, right? More tax dollars per square foot. That's perfect. That's why the secondary suites were then, you know, kind of the bill was passed and and then each municipality had to have their methodology and and procedure for allowing those. The secondary dwellings is really the next wave of that. Um, And so there's a few things there, right? Like when we think about burring, 
which I know you do a bunch of as well. Um, this burr is that generic concept. We could, we could do it with a single family home and then hang on to that single family home. The secondary suite was just a very predictable way to create that forced appreciation, right? Yeah. And at the same time, get double the revenue, better cash flow. And so we created cash flow rather than buying it. Um, because of that density, you know, evolving over time, now we have to create them instead of buy them. And the garden suite is just another way to do that in a very cost predictable, ARV predictable, cash flow predictable way. So a garden suite essentially is, a, you know, a separate building in somebody's backyard. So if you're an investor and you have maybe a single family property, instead of potentially doing a basement, because maybe the basement height is not where you need it to be, you could maximize and add this building into the backyard and also get additional rents. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And, and even to build on that, like, yes, if the ceiling height weren't there, you could still make a good investment out of the property. Where we're really trying to capitalize is doing both, right? Having, you know, buying that property with a secondary suite. We know those numbers are getting tighter and tighter. The purchase to ARV is getting more and more compressed, right? As people realize the potential. So now if we can buy it, put in the secondary suite, the opportunity is to also put in the garden suite um, and then get three units on the property. And that's where we really kind of see a super strong ROI and cash flow. So you've done, a, a few, how many of these have you done so far? I know they're still fairly new. Yeah, very, very new. Um, there's three of them so far that I've done for clients. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking at my own properties um, to retrofit. So there's kind of two big use cases, right? There's the one we just described where we purchase and have our eye on the garden suite, which is opening up um, in a very, very tight, you know, super tough market to buy in and, and make your numbers still strong. It's opening up new doors there, which is huge. Um, and then there's the what I would consider just an absolute grand slam, which is retrofitting garden suites into your existing duplexes, um, which, you know, from a number standpoint, it just, you can't sign up fast enough. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I know you're not a mortgage broker, but, you know, just out of curiosity, how are they appraising them? Yeah, great question. So part of the challenge right now is, you know, in technology, we would, we would kind of differentiate between cutting edge and bleeding edge. Bleeding edge, you got to be, you know, ready for, whatever might come because it's so, there's no proof of concepts. It's just completely unproven. I would describe the garden suites as much more cutting edge. Um, but with that, with that kind of um, trailblazing that, that is you know, taking place on, on the garden suites come some unknowns, right? So some lenders are um, not yet recognizing the rent revenue or the value that comes from putting in the secondary uh, dwelling. And so, it, to me, I would caution investors to say these can, be, these can and will be and are amazing. However, just be ready to keep your capital there for a little bit longer because it's, you know, if you think back to secondary suites six, seven years ago, it was the same hurdle, right? We had to go to a B lender first and then an A lender because the A lender was freaked out if we refied too quickly. And today it's, it's smooth sailing, right? All the A lenders know about it. They have a procedure for it. The uh, appraisers are well acclimated to secondary suites. And so hitting our numbers is much easier. Back then it was tough. Now it's the same thing with the garden suites yeah. where there's the rents, the value, the appraisal, those things are going to be the hurdles we need to jump. Um, and that's just part of being in a new, new model and, mm-hmm. and cutting some new ground. But if you can leave your capital there and you're okay with that, it's, it's just a matter of time, right? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think it is a matter of time and I think it's a matter of, of, not only time, but also, you know, 
having somebody do it before you and have that as a base or like, for example, like I have a friend that's doing this in, in Ottawa and they're getting it appraised like a triplex, right? So like right. two units with an additional or rather I think with, with Ottawa, it might be a little bit different. So like, like a second, so two units, it would be appraised as a duplex as an example. There are some, some different rules and regulations, I think too, right? With the, you know, the different towns, the different cities, yeah. you know, what they allow, what they don't allow, where you've done them. What are some of the things that we might want to check maybe with our own towns or our own cities? You know, it could be, I mean, really could be anything, but I'm just thinking, for example, and you can give me other examples, but you've got to connect the plumbing and the hydro right to the main house. You've got to have a way to, to make that work. It can't be its own separate stuff altogether. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So there's a few things to look at. One is um, zoning. Um, so we have our, you know, our five critical things for secondary suites, right? It's, it's similar, but the details are different. So we want to look at zoning. For example, in Peterborough, R1 is uh, okay for a secondary suite, not okay yet for a secondary dwelling. In Peterborough, you can do a secondary dwelling or a secondary suite, but you can't do both on the same plot of land just yet. Although they've already said it's coming. We're just not there yet. Mm-hmm. In Barrie, you can do all three today. Um, so they're very, um, in the, in the 10 different markets that I work in, Barry's probably the furthest ahead in terms of secondary suites. Um, others have allowed it. I would say Barry is probably one of the front runners in terms of, the additional um, units, right? That's right. That's right. And you raise a good point right around water, waste, electrical, heat, cooling, all of those things. So on the water and waste, what Barry is doing, so they kind of, there was a little bit of a hiccup there. I think the city was originally saying, you know, we'll upgrade your feed. And now they're kind of saying, okay, that probably doesn't scale too well for us. So why don't you upgrade your feed up to our our, our, our system? And then we'll take a smaller expense in, in um, kind of facilitating from there. And so when we vet a property, we want to look at the main water line. It's typically half inch or three quarter. They want one inch when you're going to have three units on the property. So we're looking at the expense of upgrading that water line, though it's a supply line, I mean. The, the waistline um, should be four inches. I'm just citing examples. Obviously, mm-hmm. for anybody thinking of doing this, you know, get with your designer, get with your architect. They know all of the details and kind of live and breathe in this world. And so I'm just citing some examples, but four-inch waistline. Um, and then for um, plumbing, uh, sorry, electrical, heat, hydro, we're often looking at the, the split units. Um, so running ideally a separate meter to the garden suite um, and then having heating and cooling being run from um, a ductless uh, split unit, which is a pretty good way to set that up in terms of the overall cost benefit. They're not perfect, meaning there's a little more maintenance cost. Um, they're a little bulkier, but they are quick and easy to install and have it separate from the house. Yeah, like I said, a separate meter is ideal just because if you can have separate water, separate heat, separate hydro, then, then you know, less, less contact points between the tenants, less friction, everybody's happier. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. I want to take a quick pause from the podcast to introduce you to some of my amazing contractors. On this week's episode, I wanted to introduce you to Rob and Joel 
from White's Elm Design Build. And Robin Joel just finished my major renovations on my latest Burlington project. And it was a full renovation and absolutely worth it. They've been super easy to work with. I wanted to give you guys some insights on some of the services that they offer their clients and they focus on Oakville to Hamilton and beyond, but they're really great. Like if you guys are ever in a property and you want to FaceTime or video call Rob or Joel, they can actually give you some insights on what to look for and also how much we are looking at renovations. Because if you're thinking about doing a flip or a burr project, the rhino part is really important to get right, to also figure out how much it's gonna cost and what renos are gonna be needed to get the actual maximum after repair value, so super important. They will gladly do these video calls or conference calls with you guys to give you some of those insights. They're really good at getting back to clients quickly, they can also do physical walkthroughs. If you guys are thinking about purchasing a property or you have it under contract, they can do that with you. They're super professional and uh, they've been very involved in my latest project and uh, really on the ball. So super easy to communicate with. They finished on time, on budget, which is really important as we know. And they've got a whole team of trades. They line them up so that they're as efficient as possible. And they work with a lot of investors, but they also do some of the higher end flip types of projects too. So they work on everything in between. They're fully licensed, insured, WSIB covered. So feel free to reach out to them. They are able to be found at whiteelmdesignbuild.com. That is whiteelmdesignbuild.com. Or you can send them an email, joel, J-O-E-L, at white elmdesignbuild.com or rob at whiteelmdesignbuild.com. Good luck on your next projects. Now back to the show. Yeah. yeah. I guess if you're, if you're adding this kind of stuff too, and then all of a sudden you've got two tenants that are sharing the backyard and you're going to put a third one in their backyard space. I mean, I can see how some of it could, could potentially cause some, some friction down the road. It's, you know, it's obviously the, to me, I think it's a great opportunity. It's probably easier to do it before you place people in so that everything is there. They're not yeah. removing, we're not removing their yard space or we're not changing how their utilities get paid or not get paid by them. But, you know, but I think it's still a good opportunity if you've got something that you want to boost the cash flow. Um, how much are these? Like, I mean, you know, where did you guys go to, to get these garden suites? I know there's some modular places, but I don't know if you built them stick. And can you, can you give us like maybe the average of, I, I know, like, I don't know if it's like an average per square foot or just like an average yeah. price that you're able to share. Yeah, no problem. So, and, and you raise an interesting point just before I get to those numbers. Um, and that is, I think the, the, the market's adoption around these, like it's, they're not, they're not as aesthetically pleasing, I guess, as a purpose-built triplex um, because it is another unit on the property. But I, and so I think there might be right now we're seeing a premium rent for these. And so people are paying a premium. They're willing to overlook the fact that it's another building on the same property because it's a detached building. And so we see more rent in garden suites than we do in secondary suites. Yeah, because of that detached component. It's kind of interesting, right? Yeah. Um, and it's probably all brand new and it probably looks somewhat modern. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. They look beautiful inside. Like, they're, you're right, they're, they're, they're brand new um, top to bottom. And so, yeah, they look great and they're, they're a nice space, right? They're purpose-built, functional. They're, they're quite nice. Um, 
So yeah, and then in terms of the size, back to your point around the shared yards and stuff like that, size is typically around 10% of the overall lot size. So if you've got a 6,000 square foot lot, you can roughly think about a 600 square foot garden suite. Um, and then, yeah, like in terms of um, the, the shared space, I think that, yeah, like where, what I would look at there is just, you know, the more, the more land, the better, obviously bigger garden suite, but also easier to kind of divvy up that lot of land and make sure that the tenants are all happy um, in their own space, right? If ideally they can, you can have a little partition or a little way to set up the yard so that each has their own place to barbecue and kind of enjoy the, the outdoors. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just, you know, average cost of them, like what do you think they range? Yeah, yeah. So the cost, so roughly think around 150 to 200. They vary quite a bit in terms of what you can build and, and that varies from from region to region as well. So if you think of the range being 600 square foot built on slab, one bedroom, you know, think in the 150, 160, 170 kind of range, depending on your finishes and how you, you structure it. Up to, you know, a bigger one, it's an 8,000 square foot lot, for example, 800 square foot garden suite. You can actually have a basement in these. And so for investors who believe that you know, what we've been talking about for years, density, 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 then if you believe that that this is just another step along that evolutionary path, then it's smart to position your garden suite to potentially have a second suite within it as well, which, you know, I, I'm not doing that. My investors aren't doing it. But if we're forward thinking, if we want to be where the puck is going instead of where it is, then we should probably think about that as a concept as well. And potentially if we're putting a basement in, you know, start to align the utilities, um, the rough-ins, those kind of things, so that that secondary retrofit inside the garden suite is is just that much easier. Yeah, I mean, it, that makes sense. You want to you want to think ahead of the ball. I mean, I guess a big yard is important, right? You mentioned like six hundred square feet for a house. That's fairly small, but I, you know, you probably don't want to be buying something with a small lot and then all of a sudden thinking that you can put it in there that ten percent. Uh, number I think is, is really interesting. Yeah. Um, and then you have to, I guess, figure out like how much you need to like to tie all the utilities, right? Like, like how to do it, you know, how, how long it's going to be. I'm sure that adds into the cost as well. But so you, you're, you're saying around 150 to 200, is that connected, like installed everything done type of thing? Yeah, exactly. So that would include the, uh, the waste and water. Um, the separate hydro, all that kind of stuff factored in. Mm -hmm. uh, you do get some rebates, which we're digging into now to understand, you know, what kind of rebates can we get on what kind of time frame? Uh, but you should think, yeah, all in, 15200 Yeah. And then, I mean, obviously rent is different everywhere. But if, if we could just use yours as an example, the ones that you guys have done, the one fifty two hundred in, I guess the, these are where, Durham? Uh, Barrie. Barrie. Okay, so yeah. these are in Barrie. Um, what is the rent that you're getting from them per month? Yeah, so they range, uh, to your point, they do range from region to region. And Barry, for a one-bedroom, you should land around 1800 For a two-bedroom, you should be closer to around 2000 So that is technically the 1% rule, right? <laughs> like in the That's U.S., right. when you hear this 1% rule, that doesn't really happen that much in Canada. But, you know, 1% is basically if you buy something and it's 100 grand, then your rent is 1000 And if you're telling me that it's about well, that 150 to, to, to you know, 200K mark, and you're getting about 1800, maybe 2000. I mean, that's pretty much the 1% rule right there. You're cash flowing pretty well in that unit. Even if you may yeah. not get the entire refi 
back out because it's so new. It doesn't mean that you can't go back and refi down the road once they've got more comparables and more things to go off of. But I think it's, it's a great opportunity for cash flow. Are you, are you doing any of these as like short-term rentals? Cause when I, you know, when I'm thinking of these like really cool, like trendy, like tiny houses, you know, in some markets, again, not all markets will, will be conducive to this, but it could be a great opportunity to get some additional cash where, you know, instead of renting it to a long-term tenant, you might be able to turn it over a few more times, a little bit more management, but yeah, yeah. higher cash flow with the Airbnb. Yeah, it's a great question. It's not something that I have done, um, but depending on the area, right. And the demand and yep. the you know, the perceived kind of demand for that short-term rental, that could be, that could be way more cash flow. And, and to your point, the 1% rule, cash on cash, 10 plus percent, like it's, and the cost of that 200 grand today being as low as it is, I mean, it's for, especially on the retrofit side, but even on the new build, it's, it's super strong. Yeah. You know, and I don't know if you looked into this, but I was talking to a couple companies that do the shipping containers, one in Wallen specifically. And like, he was giving me like, crazy good prices and <laughs> not connected, yeah, yeah. right? Not connected, but like the very, very, very basic starting at like 40 grand to maybe about 75 grand and you, you tie it yeah. all in, but you can get some really cool like shipping container houses. Um, I mean, I'm sure you could go modular. I don't know what the prices are on, on that as well, but are, yeah. are you guys building these as stick builds or are you building them uh, modular? Yeah. So stick builds right now. Now to your point though, I, I think the 150, 200, like, to be fair, this is like renovating a kitchen or a bathroom, right? Every trade has to come in, and so they're more expensive. Mm -hmm. yep. um, to be fair, it is an entire house in, in a very small space, and so more, more dollars per square foot, more cost is understandable. I think, though, that that, that modular kind of um, prefab is going to drive that price down, especially as the demand goes up and the adoption rate goes up. I, I got to predict that as, as part of what's coming. And so I haven't personally, uh, the shipping container sounds really interesting um, and, and potentially not only a cost effective way, but potentially a really unique and kind of, you know, two tenants, I mean, interesting way to, to create that space. Um, so yeah, I think there's going to be some fruit down that road for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's opportunities, right? With every, every hurdle, every challenge. I mean, it's a challenging time right now to find anything that makes sense. I think there, this, this bill 108 is, is super interesting and, and opens up a whole lot of doors, but I, yeah. I will say, like you said, Barry is ahead. There's, there's many towns that are working on putting it into their zoning bylaw, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't yeah. think they're, they're there yet. Right. Do you know like which, which ones, I don't know if you know this, but which ones, like, for example, like in Ontario, uh, are already, you know, um, stamping and, and, and approving these? Yeah, so Barry, we covered. Um, Peterborough, we touched on. So yes, they're allowing garden, uh, garden suites, um, uh, secondary dwellings, but it's an either or in Peterborough right now with the announcement that, you know, all three will be allowed before too long. Okay. Um, Welland, yes. Kitchener-Waterloo, yes. Brantford, yes. Um, all of those are on the list. Uh, Hamilton, not yet. Oshawa, not yet. Um, although I think nothing's guaranteed, I think it's an inevitability. Um, so even, you know, even for investors that I'm working with in Brantford, um, Welland, all markets, you know, we're, whether it's adopted and rolled out yet or not, we're still modeling the numbers for the garden suites because it's, you know, Oshawa, I mean, it's just a matter of time. Hamilton, Hamilton's actually quite progressive. They've got a lot of their information published. They're just not approved all yet. So you can see what's coming. You can plan for it in a really educated way already today. 
Yeah, absolutely. So if somebody's, you know, in, in an area, maybe that they're not too sure if it's approved, not approved, like what are some of the things that they can do in terms of research or, or people to call in order to find out? Yeah, so I would say um, a couple of things there. You can phone the city. The city is generally, uh, in this regard, helpful. However, the, the cost benefit for them isn't super strong for them to make any future promises. <laughs> so they can be a little hedgy when it comes to um, you know, any kind of timelines or anything like that. Probably one of your best resources is one of two things, either working with somebody who's in this space, um, meaning investors, um, realtors who are working in, you know, in this particular product, um, or if you want to get right into the details, contact your designer, um, the architect in that area. But again, like even, even that, this is like realtors, mortgage brokers, anybody, if they don't specialize in garden suites and investments, then they're not the right designer to be talking to. So just find, there's going to be one or two in each market um, who are specializing and who are front runners in, in kind of this particular, you know, blazing this trail. And so get in touch with them and they'll be able to give you um, all the details. Like there's, there's all kinds of things to consider your proximity to other buildings and the, the, the window spacing and all kinds of stuff to, to kind of vet and make sure you're, you're comfortable with before, uh, before pulling the trigger. Awesome. That's yeah. uh, some, some great advice. What's, what's next for you? What's, uh, what's next for 2021, 2022 onwards? Yeah. So, I mean, um, more, uh, more investing for sure. Um, we've got a building we're converting right now um, with a secondary suite. We've uh, it's in Oshawa. Um, so we're um, got our eye on the garden suite, of course. Um, multifamily, I mean, it's probably more competitive than the rest of the market right now in multifamily. Um, so I'm still in multis, um, love them as a product and will continue to do them. Um, you know, having invested in the north, west and, and, and east in both strategies, I'll continue to kind of push forward on both of those, although responding to what the market's doing, right? So if multis... Multis are, are one competitive and two, the prices are extremely aggressive. So I'm backing off a little bit there until this makes a little bit more sense. To me, the garden suites is, is an area to focus on in 2021 and probably for the next five years um, for that matter. Cause like I said, like this is like secondary suites, right? Like they'll, they'll just continue. Um, so coaching uh, clients, doing those acquisitions, and, and one of the things for 2020 and, and uh, uh, 2021 and 2022 is going to be the retrofitting of the garden suites. I mean, there's, there's lots of uh, super good stuff to be had there. Absolutely. Lots of great things to think about. Awesome. Chris, well, it, yeah. was, uh, it was awesome having you on. The next part of the podcast is our lightning round. So I'm going to ask you five questions. Every guest gets the same ones. You're going to give me the first answer that comes to mind. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. This week's lightning round is brought to you by Complete Properties. If you need a great property manager to help you in the Niagara, Hamilton, and Burlington markets, reach out to Margaret Cameron at 905-920-7886. She can also be reached at margaret at completepminc.com via email or the website completepropertiesinc.com. All right, question number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book? So... I'll give you a little bit of a philosophical answer to this one. Um, so to me, one thing that becomes more and more kind of evident as, as I coach clients, as I do my own pushing and growing, is that the, the skills and the knowledge around investing is super important 
but not the most important thing. And so for me, it's, it's understanding yourself and, and investing into yourself, not even through paid courses necessarily, but in books and, and that, uh, and, and educational material to understand yourself. So my answer to that one is indirect, but, but it is my answer. So the, the book I would recommend for me is Eckhart Tolle, uh, The Power of Now. Um, to me, that just was like one of those, um, I think he's like light years ahead of most people around. Uh, and so his material to me is like, uh, expansive. It's like opening your mind up uh, to all kinds of different things. And so to me, that's like, you think about, you know, what, uh, what ladder are you going to lean your wall against? Well, if we've got eight ladders up against the right walls, I think we really want to figure out which ladders, which one or two are going to help the other six. And to me, that book is one of those ones that'll help everything else you're doing. Awesome. What was the name of the book again? The power of now. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Number two, I don't know if you are a podcast listener and this doesn't need to be real estate related particularly, but do you have a favorite podcast? I do. Um, so I listened to Joe Rogan quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I know I'm not alone on that one. Um, he's got a huge audience, obviously. The thing I like about Rogan though and why I would recommend it is very much in keeping with, with what I just mentioned. Like to me, um, and I think it's, I perceive it to be a big part of his success. Like he's got a natural curiosity towards so many things that to me, his podcast is like, he just gets a ton of really interesting people on there. And then they have a free form conversation about, and it's really driven from their expertise and his curiosity. Uh, So to me, like you think about, you know, one of the biggest influences in our lives is the, you know, we become the five people that we hang around the most. That's a way the podcasts that, you know, and you're doing, we're doing one right, right, right now, right? They're an amazing way to infuse some of that into my life. Even though I don't hang around and bump shoulders with Joe Rogan, I still get that same vibe, which to me is, I don't know, it's huge. I think it just through osmosis sinks into you and, and helps you, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It is a great podcast and he is a great interviewer as well. Question number three, aside from anything work-related or real estate, what do you do for fun? Yeah, so I do, um, I do some motocross. Um, I play guitar, uh, golf, love water sports. Um, trying to think of what else. Lots of hobbies. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, lots of, uh, maybe too many because none of them are cheap. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, question number four. If you lost all of your money and all of your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? So I would answer this probably in, in two ways. So if, if I were um, knowing what I know today, I would take that experience and I would run with it um, in probably a fraction of the time. Meaning if I were to rewind and restart, I would invest heavier into myself and into partnerships um, because I think the investment into myself, that education, and the partnership combined is going to give you that experience and that knowledge to be able to kind of grow and snowball fast. Today, having um, the benefit of the ground that I've covered so far, I would um, bring that experience, uh, raise capital, do more investing. I would start that in a very expedited way, I think. Um, so yeah, I would, I would 
probably answer that in, in both ways, just depending on, you know, where somebody's starting from, yeah. one of two answers might, might be helpful. Yeah, actually, and, and that leads us into our last one. So if somebody has $50,000 and they do want to get started, how would you recommend they spend that money? Yeah, so 50, um, yeah, 50 is interesting and in then it's a little bit low, but it's still a chunk of money, right? So I think, you've, you know, it's kind of a, a smart way to, to size that, that, uh, that sum of money, right? Because it, it, it's probably more common and a little bit trickier riddle to solve, right? Mm -hmm. So in keeping with the, the, the last answer I just had, I would, you know, propose partnering with somebody the, as you know, the more you get into investing, the more creative you can be and the more interesting you can be with deals. Um, so I've had several people approach me and say, what if I partnered with you and, you know, you put my money to work in that standard JV way, but if you could share more information with me than normal, then I could then look at doing this myself as we go forward. So you put my money to work, I'll, I'll make you know, make my money work hard for me. And then if you could share, you know, not the full educational experience, but, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit more than you would with your standard partner who doesn't want to be bothered, then I could learn. And, and that's worked several times. Um, so that would be kind of a, a way to get two birds, one stone. Um, so I would think about, you know, trying to find somebody with that, with that model that you could possibly put that money to work with. Short of that, I mean, there's there's private lending that you could get into that's, and, and this kind of is where you tailor it to the person, right? Mm -hmm. So private lending, if you didn't have the time and the, the energy to sink into the education yet is a way to put your money to work. Or if you were, had the time and you wanted to put to work, then maybe that JV model would be uh, one of the best fits. Okay, awesome. Great answers, Chris. Thanks for playing the lightning round. Where <laughs> can my listeners reach out and find out more about you? Um, probably the best place. Um, you can send me an email info at blueorchardpropertygroup.com um, or check me out. The link tree that I have is at shabib.com. Uh, so just my last name.com. Um, either one of those is probably one of the best ways to get a hold of me. Okay. And do you mind spelling out your last name just so people can write it down? Yeah, for sure. S H E B I B.com. Shabib. Amazing. Any yeah. final last words of advice? Well, geez, I mean, from working with uh, a lot of investors, probably one of the things I would say is, you know, try to either in your own mind or in working with somebody else, try to decipher is, is real estate right for me? Is, is, is X investing methodology right for me? Real estate's just one of them. If it is, do I have the education? To, to pull the trigger and start putting it into action. If no, get the education. If yes, put it into action, right? That's just a, there's only like four nodes in that decision tree. But if we can get uh, clear on that in our own heads, it can help kind of clear some of the fog and, and put things into motion. Uh, I would say that. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for your time today. It was great talking to you. And Guys, feel free to reach out to Chris. Uh, you are a wealth of knowledge, Chris. And uh, thanks for, uh, for sharing all of the, uh, the wonderful things today. Sarah, thank you. It's been a pleasure being on the show and uh, I look forward to next time. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons. And at the time, they all seemed very valid, but... 
As I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away, and eventually only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked, and also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.